Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 159, Best of Frenemies, part 6. Last week we covered what Korea was like under Japanese rule, but of course, not everybody was prepared to tolerate living under Japanese domination. This week, we turn to the group who really catch the imagination of post-war Koreans, the Resisters. Korean resistance began before the formal annexation of the country by Japan. Rebellion in the countryside against pro-Japanese policies was a constant feature of the final years of the Joseon dynasty, the most famous example being, of course, the Donghak movement we discussed a few episodes back. For the colonial period, however, the real beginnings of resistance can be traced to the end of the First World War. When the war came to an end, the powers involved came together to negotiate a final treaty led by the Americans under President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson's adherence to the liberal democratic values of the United States meant that he could not endorse the kind of peace envisioned in the treaties of alliance that had kicked off the war the kind of cynical horse trading where the victorious powers would collect spoils in treasure and territory from the defeated. Instead, Wilson's political values combined with a sort of providential vision inherited from his religious background to create a vision of a final, just peace. His goal was nothing less than to create a new worldwide order which would be so self-evidently just that it would prevent future conflict. Of course, we all know how that little dream is going to turn out. Most important for our purposes, though, is one of the 14 points Wilson suggested in January 1919 as a starting place for negotiating the final peace, the notion of national self-determination. This is the idea that if a people or ethnic group so choose, they are entitled to a state of their own that every group out there has the right to choose its own political status. Once everybody had made that choice, so the thinking went, there would be much less left for them to fight over. In Korea, this idea was received with great enthusiasm. Korean scholars, intellectuals, and nationalists began taking up the theme that Koreans deserve the right to choose their national destiny too, and that Woodrow Wilson's peace plan gave them the right to do so. This, in turn, was a major catalyst for one of the most dramatic acts of open resistance in Korean history. The other half of the catalyst was provided by the death in late January of Emperor Gojong. Gojong's death was another reminder of the old, independent Korea, and possibly a demonstration of Japanese perfidy to boot. Before his corpse was even cold, rumors of poisoning were already swirling. On March 1st, 1919, a group of Korean intellectuals gathered in a cafe near Tagpol Park in Seoul to read out a document drafted by one of their number, a historian named Choi Nam Son. This document, the Korean Declaration of Independence, laid out an argument for Korea's right to self-determination based both on Wilson's ideas and on Korea's long history as an independent state. As you might imagine, a good amount of the document is taken up with discussion of Japan, and I'm going to quote that section at length because I think it's interesting and, frankly, valuable for discussion of the modern Korean-Japanese relationship. Quote, 
Though Japan has repeatedly violated its promises since the Treaty of 1876, we do not here condemn its perfidy. Though its scholars and government officials dismiss our great dynastic achievements in order to prop up their claim that our history began as a foreign colony with a primitive civilization, though it merely seeks a conqueror's gratification willfully ignoring the ancient foundation and outstanding characteristics of our people, we do not here take it to task. We are pressed to reprimand ourselves and thus have little time to reproach others. Busy with today's work, we have little time to chastise yesterday's actions. Today, our only duty is to rebuild ourselves, not to demolish others. It is to explore our new destiny according to the solemn dictates of our conscience, not to squabble with others over fleeting grudges and old animosities. It is to restore our natural rational foundation by rectifying the unnatural irrational ambition of the Japanese politicians in the grip of obsolete ideas. Annexation made without national consensus has inevitably led to intimidation, used as a temporary measure, inequality caused by discrimination, and statistics falsified to justify it. Just look at the result today. The chasm of rancor has grown so wide that bridging the two peoples with differing interests seems all but impossible. To boldly right old wrongs, opening a new relationship based on true mutual understanding is certainly the best way for both countries to avert disaster and foster amity, end quote. However, if the Japanese were listening to this, they clearly were not taking good notes. Korean crowds began to gather to hear both this first reading and others arranged by students and activists across Seoul. In response, the government general called out the police. When the crowds continued to grow and ignored orders to disperse, the government general called out the military. In the end, to bring crowds under control, the Imperial Japanese Army turned its guns on the protesters. The independence activists had arranged copycat demonstrations across the Korean peninsula, and army units were called in to respond to these as well. The wide-ranging nature of the protests, combined with an understandable desire on the part of the government general of Korea at the time to underplay the scope of them, makes it hard to get accurate figures for what happened next. Generally, an extraordinarily impressive figure of two million protesters nationwide gets thrown about, though I'm not completely convinced of the accuracy of this in a country with a population of just over 20 million, but I'm also not an expert on the subject. The Korean historian Park Yun-sik gives figures of 7,509 people killed in the Japanese military response, 15,849 wounded, and 46,303 arrested. The official Japanese figures, which were definitely doctored to protect the reputation of the sitting government general, show 533 killed and 12,000 arrested. The truth, I suppose, lies somewhere between those two numbers. Hell if I know exactly where, but if I were a betting man, I'd put my money more towards the Korean figures than the Japanese ones. The suppression of the March 1st independence movement provided the impetus for a far more wide-ranging effort at Korean national independence. Korean delegates still made it to Versailles with the help of Chinese diplomats, who were more than happy to try and embarrass the Japanese in an international setting, to plead their case for an independent Korea, but none of the Allied powers was prepared to give the Koreans the time of day. 
The Americans, frankly speaking, just were not willing to piss the Japanese off. And the other powers, they had colonial possessions with independence movements too. Why on earth would they want to encourage this kind of thing? Instead, the movement for Korean independence would have to be pursued by Koreans with no expectation of support from the broader international community. However, there was one other country with an interest in humiliating the Japanese by encouraging separatism in the crown jewel of their empire. Interestingly enough, you see, Korea's independence movements are going to be closely bound to Japan. And I say independence movements in the plural because there's going to be more than one. In fact, there's going to be a whole range of them. While the Yi royal family still existed, the cowed submission of some of its members to the Japanese combined with the outright collaboration of others did a lot to delegitimize it and to remove it as a potential focal point of resistance. In the absence of a unifying force provided by the old Joseon kings, things became somewhat reminiscent of that one sketch from Monty Python's Life of Brian, with the People's Front of Judea squaring off against the Judean People's Front. A plethora of different resistance movements grew out of the events of 1919. For our purposes, we're going to focus in on two of those movements, the ones that really matter. The first was founded a month after the riots, in April 1919, in the city of Shanghai. Shanghai, remember, was nominally a part of China, but with a tremendous foreign presence. Large parts of the city were ruled as foreign concessions, meaning that within, say, the French concession, only French law applied, only French police could arrest someone. That made it a wonderful place for an underground independence movement. The Chinese could shelter it most of the time, and if the Japanese ever put pressure on China then resistance members could just hop over to the foreign concession and disappear for a bit until things blew over. And so Shanghai became the home of the Provisional Government of the Republic of Korea, a government in exile which claimed legitimate leadership over the entire peninsula. Though not the only government in exile claiming to be the legitimate government of Korea, the Shanghai Provisional Government will be the most successful, owing primarily to the actions of one of its leading members, Singman Rhee. Rhee was distantly descended from the Korean royal family. Born in 1876, he threw himself into the world of high Korean politics, and was arrested by the Japanese after he was implicated in a plot to get revenge on the killers of Queen Min. However, Rhee was released from prison as part of a general amnesty on the eve of the Russo-Japanese War, designed to build support for the war effort. He then converted to Christianity, and relocated to the United States. Rhee's goal, and indeed one of the main ideas motivating his whole career, was to convince the Americans to intervene on Korea's behalf and help Korea get independence back. Rhee attended the Portsmouth Conference ending the Russo-Japanese War in person, and attempted to convince President Theodore Roosevelt to make Korean liberation a part of the agenda. When that plan failed, Rhee remained in the United States and alternated his independence activities with a Western education, which he hoped would make him a better spokesman for his cause. He received a BA from George Washington University, an MA from Harvard, and would eventually get a PhD from Princeton focusing on political science, with an emphasis on American politics. His entry in the George Washington Yearbook 
provides a short summary of basically all of Korean modern history and Ri's career in particular, with a handy dose of old-timey early 20th century racism to boot. Quote, There is a young fellow named Ri. From the realm of Korea is he. Lest perchance you should stray, he is careful to say, I am neither a Jap nor Chinny. End quote. Ri's activities made him something of a known quantity in the United States. They're also why I'm referring to him by his Americanized name, Singman Ri, which is not how his name is pronounced in Korean. I'm going to mangle it a bit, but it's something like Yi Seong Man. Anyway, Ri's activities also boosted his profile enough that when the provisional government of the Republic of Korea was coming together, he was the natural choice for leadership. Ri was joined by a host of other independence activists, most famously by Kim Gu. Like Ri, Gu was of the old Korean aristocracy and became an activist during the final years of Korean independence. Kim Gu's notoriety came primarily from this time. First, Gu had participated in the Donghak movement, and second, after that movement's failure, Gu assaulted and murdered a Japanese trader named Tsuchida Josuke in revenge for the assassination of Queen Min. Kim Gu was arrested for the murder and sentenced to death, but pardoned by Emperor Gojong after a public outcry defending his actions as patriotic. He broke out of prison in 1898, joined the Buddhist priesthood, and eventually became an independence activist before making his way to Shanghai. Unfortunately, this gathering of Korean luminaries quickly fell into bitter infighting. In 1925, Ri was accused by the provisional government of abuse of power, and he was impeached. His successors proved to lack political adeptness, and very few of them were able to hang on to the presidency for longer than a year. This lack of organization is the primary reason why the provisional government was not often a direct target for the Japanese. Japanese spies did hunt for its members, but the effort was not particularly organized or prioritized, particularly compared to the other Korean independence movement we're going to talk about today. But we're not quite there yet. After his ouster in 1925, Singman Ri left Shanghai and returned to his travels abroad, trying to build sympathy for the Korean cause. Without the backing of the provisional government, he lacked funding and was often forced to beg or borrow from friends and to live on credit. Still, that did not stop him from trying to find romance. In 1933, Ri attended a meeting of the League of Nations in Geneva, hoping to make his case. There, he met an Austrian interpreter named Franziska Donner. The two apparently had a real connection because she quit her job for him, and less than a year later, they were married. With his blushing bride, Ri eventually returned to the U.S., there, as the U.S. and Japan grew further and further apart, he finally came to the attention of the American authorities. Offering his experience in rallying Koreans to the Allied cause, Ri was eventually able to win the support of the United States for Korean independence and for the Shanghai Provisional Government in particular. It was recognized by the United States as the legitimate government of Korea. With this triumph in hand, Ri was able to return to the people who had once ousted him in triumph. He was restored to his position as president of the provisional government and held it when the war ended. Now, I know what you're thinking. A bunch of intellectuals sitting in cafes debating who should be president of a functionally non-existent government does not a resistance movement make. 
did these guys have an army or anything? The answer is sort of. The provisional government did not have an army directly loyal to it for much of its existence, but it did serve as a coordinating committee for the actually armed resistance groups out there. So, for example, the commander of one of the few military actions by Koreans against the Japanese claimed loyalty to the provisional government. His name was Yi Bum Seok, and like Syngman Rhee, he too was related to the Korean imperial family. In 1920, a group of forces under his command ambushed Japanese troops near Qingshan Li in Manchuria. At the time, the Japanese were busily intervening in Russia's civil war between the Whites and the Bolsheviks, and moving troops through Manchuria into the Russian territories to the north. The Koreans, meanwhile, had a large presence in Manchuria. We didn't talk about this too much, but several of the ancient Korean kingdoms claimed territory in what is now the People's Republic of China. Even though the border between Korea and China has been stable at the Yalu River for centuries now, communities of Koreans continued, and continue, to live in the Manchurian regions of China. Koreans today are a legally recognized ethnic minority in the People's Republic, and in regions on the Korean-Chinese border, Korean is a legal second language after Mandarin Chinese. Anyway, during the colonial period, this meant that Manchuria outside of Japan's control until 1931, and full of sympathetic Korean communities, was a natural base for anti-Japanese resistance movements. It makes sense that this is the place from which Korean partisans could strike. By the way, part of the eventual rationale for the invasion of Manchuria in 1931 was the desire, among elements of the Japanese officer corps, to root out Korean partisans from the area. Anyway, the Korean forces that ambushed the Japanese at Qingshan Li did inflict some heavy casualties, though the modern South Korean military hugely inflates the numbers, recording 3,000 out of 5,000 killed on the Japanese side and only 135 lost on the Korean side. In practice, the battle was a tactical draw. The Japanese lost troops and had to pull back, but they were not decisively crushed and Japanese troop movements to Russia were not hindered. Anyway, in 1940, once the war in China had been rolling for three years, the provisional government was able to further its role as the clearinghouse for anti-Japanese resistance by organizing a Korean Liberation Army supported by the Guomindang government of Chiang Kai-shek. The Korean Liberation Army was made to bring together all anti-Japanese resistance groups under the same tent, it even invited communist and anarchist cells to join up, though not all of them did. In practice, the KLA was heavily dependent on support from the Western Allies, routed through the Guomindang government. Originally a pretty paltry force, by 1945 the KLA had been substantially bolstered not only by increased financial support, but by the Japanese themselves, or rather, Korean conscripts drafted by the Japanese who promptly deserted in droves and went over to the KLA. Now, there's one other resistance group I would be completely remiss not to discuss, and in some ways it's the more important movement of the two. Post-war South Korea, you see, was defined by many things. American strategic interest, Korean collaborators, the old soldiers of the Korean Liberation Army, and the politicians of the provisional government. 
North Korea, on the other hand, was all about one man and his close band of friends and allies. That man was Kim Il-sung. I can't tell you that much about Kim Il-sung's life because so much of it is obfuscated by both North and South Korean propaganda. The North Koreans, as we've said, claim he was born on Mount Baekdu, the sacred mountain on the Korean-Chinese border, where the first Korean king supposedly descended from heaven. The South Koreans, meanwhile, claimed for decades that Kim Il-sung wasn't even really Kim Il-sung. That the man history knows as Kim Il-sung in fact killed the actual guerrilla commander named Kim Il-sung and assumed his identity in a self-serving bid for power. In case you're wondering, neither of those stories has any basis in fact. Here's what we do know. Kim Il-sung was born in 1912 to a family that Il-sung himself described in his biography as being not in poverty, but one step removed from it. Incidentally, as a fun aside, Kim Il-sung's biography is available in all of its 2,000-plus page glory on the official website of the North Korean government, where you can also learn about what a wonderful open place North Korea is and how the socialist state has liberated the North Korean people to be masters of their own destiny. You can also buy propaganda and DVDs with lovely titles like Forever Kim Il-sung, to support the socialist paradise. What I'm saying is, if you've ever wondered what it's like to be trapped in a Twilight Zone episode, your web browser can take you right there. Anyway, Kim's family, for one reason or another, ended up fleeing Korea to Manchuria to escape the Japanese, either for economic reasons or, as Kim Il-sung insisted, because Kim's parents were involved in anti-Japanese activities. Young Kim Il-sung supposedly went on to found his first resistance group, the Down with Imperialism Union, in 1926, at the tender age of 14. The modern Korean Workers' Party traces its own existence back to this anti-Japanese political union. More concretely, that same year, Kim enrolled in a military academy in Manchuria run by ethnic Koreans called the Hwasung Military Academy which had been created with the specific goal of training Korean partisans to fight against Japan. However, young Kim Il-sung was supposedly unimpressed with the traditional and uninnovative approach taken to training, and dropped out the following year. Instead, he went to middle school in the city of Jilin in Manchuria. There, exposed to the recent ideologies and trends and thought that had arrived in East Asia, Kim Il-sung began to drift away from pure Korean nationalism and towards that most seductive of ideologies for young people, communism. In 1930, Kim Il-sung took the fateful step of enrolling in the Communist Party of China. He did not enroll in the Communist Party of Korea because the Korean Party had been ejected from the Communist International in Moscow for being too nationalist which is to say too overtly anti-Japanese at a time when the Soviet Union could really not afford to piss the Japanese off. In his new role as a bona fide communist, young Il-sung actually spent a good amount of time arguing for restraint. He wanted to take years to plan for a strike against the Japanese instead of launching immediate insurrections. However, that restraint went out the window the next year when Japan's Guangdong army invaded Manchuria on the flimsy pretext of restoring order. Kim Il-sung joined up with the Northeast Anti-Japanese United Army, an umbrella of resistance groups run by the Chinese Communist Party and taking orders from Mao Zedong. 
The nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek was afraid of provoking the Japanese and thus provided little material assistance to the Manchurian guerrillas. The Chinese Communist Party, on the other hand, supported even non-communists fighting against Japan as part of a very successful PR campaign designed to burnish the party's reputation among Chinese nationalists who were not necessarily committed communists. Kim Il-sung would eventually become one of the best-known anti-Japanese guerrillas in Manchuria, directing a small force of fiercely loyal Korean partisans. These partisans would provide the backbone of the future North Korean regime. As a general rule, those fighters who stayed loyal to Kim throughout the course of his war against Japan would receive special places in the new North Korean government. Their descendants still make up the elite families of North Korea. Kim's guerrillas did score some notable victories. In particular, in 1937, they were able to cross the border into Korea proper and briefly seize control of the town of Pochonbo, the first bit of Korean territory to be held by actual Koreans in 27 years. Of course, when I say briefly, I mean briefly. The Japanese took the town back a couple of hours later. Still, the battle was a huge propaganda victory for Kim Il-sung, and to hear the histories of North Korea tell it, the only reason his forces were driven out of Pochonbo was because Kim himself was too busy in Tokyo, personally suplexing Emperor Hirohito. Still, the Japanese had the advantage of numbers and resources, and eventually Kim started to get whittled down by constant Japanese attacks. By 1940, most of the Northeast Anti-Japanese United Army had been annihilated in vicious suppression campaigns. The Japanese scoured and burned the Manchurian countryside, and practiced vicious tactics of collective punishment and mass relocation to cut off support from the rebels. Kim Il-sung and his small band, some sources suggest only a few dozen people, were forced to retreat across the Amur River into the Soviet Union, where the Soviets, fearful of war with Japan at a time when tensions were building with the Nazis, disarmed the partisans and sent them to a camp to live out the remainder of the war. Until 1945, Kim Il-sung was stuck in the Soviet Union on the sidelines of the war. Still, it wasn't all bad for him. In the Soviet Union, he met another Korean partisan with whom he fell deeply in love, his first wife, Kim Jong-suk. Shortly after getting married, the two had a child, future film buff, NBA superfan, and, and I swear to God I'm not making this up, Elvis fanboy, Kim Jong-il. Now, if it seems like I'm giving the man who created North Korea short shrift here, well, yeah, I am. But in my defense, I think that's justifiable for a couple of reasons. First, so much of Kim Il-sung's life is shrouded in the kind of propaganda that makes it impossible to distinguish reality from fiction. While on occasion that propaganda can be helpful in illuminating the nature of the North Korean regime, I prefer to avoid repeating it where possible. Second, much of Kim's field activities were the kind of guerrilla campaigns that cry out for summary. He raided the Japanese where he could, he ran where he couldn't. Anything more detailed than that would be, in my opinion, horribly monotonous for most of you. Third, there really isn't anybody other than Kim Il-sung whose story is important to understanding the birth of North Korea and its attitudes towards Japan. South Korea, because its government was a mix of collaborators and resistance members, is a bit more complicated, but North Korea? 
Kim Il-sung to find North Korea, and Kim Il-sung, if you hadn't figured this out already, just really didn't like the Japanese. Case closed. So next week, war's over, peace reigns, and where once there was one Korea, now there are two. So we'll close out the series with two final episodes. One describing the relationship between the quote-unquote workers' paradise of North Korea and Japan, and another describing the fraught coexistence of South Korea, with its former overlord turned, if not quite friend, then at least frenemy. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Best of Frenemies, Part 7.